Hey everyone, welcome to the Hockey Physiotherapy Podcast. This is episode one. Today's topic is uh, one that majorly relates to the sport of ice hockey. Um, and Thomas is going to take a big dive into it here. Um, high ankle sprains. What are we thinking? What do you have for us today? Yeah, so I guess um, with this podcast, you're going to be quizzing me, but I look forward to uh, roasting you in the future. But so uh, you said, what is, a, what is a high ankle sprain? Um, I'd say, what is a high ankle sprain? Can you give me some different grades of this and yeah. any structures involved, mechanism of injury normally? I guess more relating to hockey in this regard, yeah, but for sure. um, just in general too. Yeah, I'll, I'll start very general and then try to get more specific with relating it to hockey. So a high ankle sprain is injury to the distal tibiofibular joint, right? So at the bottom of the ankle, which is where the tibia and fibula meet at the bottom of the ankle. Um, and then the ligaments that are affected – Mainly and commonly, it's the anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, so the AITFL in the front, and then the posterior inferior tibiofibular ligament in the back. And then in between those, what really holds things together as well is the interosseous ligament. And I guess how I've done it um, in the clinic, Ben, and if we got some sort of imaging, which is pretty rare in our settings, um, I've used the West Point ankle grading system. So... The reason why I do that is just super basic. So grade one, brain or tear of the AITFL with no instability of the ankle, um, whereas grade two is complete tear of the AITFL, partial tear of the interosseous, and maybe stable or unstable, which is, you know, quite subjective. And then grade three is um, complete disruption of the ligaments resulting in major instability of the ankle. Um, and the mechanism of injury in a hockey player is going to be probably a lot different well, maybe not a lot different, but different than what we, maybe you'd see in a different sport. But um, generally, the high ankle is when um, the ankle is dorsiflexed and the foot is rotating outward relative to the tibia. So the majority of injuries involve contact. Or like, I, I believe, if we're getting very specific in hockey, one study said it was about 67%, you know, two-thirds were contact-related. So you can think about somebody's kind of in a puck battle, their foot gets stuck or they're planted. Uh, and then the foot is flared out when they're trying to rotate the other direction potentially. And if somebody wants to imagine the, uh, like what's happening at the ankle when this happens, so the ankle dorsiflexes, the tibia and fibula is spread out normally to allow movement for the talus. But when a large rotation happens, you think about the foot it, it, it's really meant to allow for the talus to move, but when we're rotating, we get injury to the syndesmosis because we're kind of spreading it out. And that's when we get that nasty feeling. Um, and I think relating this to hockey more so, uh, one study that you and I both read was um, by, I'm going to reference throughout this conversation probably three studies, and they all start with an M, but we'll supply references if somebody wants or and or in our um, bio on this podcast, but it's called Mullen Al. So in 2019, they collected NHL injury data from 2006 to 2012, and they looked at return to play times in um, high ankle sprains. But at the same time, with the return to play times, they looked at the MRI findings of all these injuries. So what they found were uh, the AITFL was damaged in almost all high ankle sprains. Um, 40-ish percent 
had PITFLs, and then bone bruising was common in 70% of them. And the ATFL, which is common as well, had issues about 50% of the time. And the deltoid ligament had 30%. So it's really like a lot of the ligaments around the whole area, but the commonality is really that AITFL is quite um, commonly affected. However, um, when we relate this back to our settings, you and I, like I'm at the lower level um, university level, and it's not like we have a ton of resources relating to being able to get an MRI. So it's like, how are we really supposed to know the, the depth of this? But perhaps it's more likely we get a CT scan or an X-ray. Um, but based on their findings, what they found, so the main takeaway from this was that the severity of MRI did not match the return to play timeline. So as a clinician for us, it's like, even if you do get an MRI, we still treat the person, not the scan, but you know, we can consider it. If we were in a different context, I'm sure it would be helpful potentially, maybe in terms of like, you know, giving us a, some sort of indication of what's truly happening. But ultimately I think that gives us a lot of uh, ideas. And the, the only other thing I'll add before you probably roast me or grill me on something is that the high ankle sprains are most commonly in forward. So 60% in, at least in this study, D-man were 30-ish percent and goalies 70%. So um, I know that's a, a long answer, but yeah. And I guess one of the big things, if there's a, a player or a previous player who may have had this injury um, before listening to this, would you say, I, I guess the, the information that was presented from that study, it doesn't really, I guess it kind of shows that the MRI where it's not showing any findings. Isn't that kind of frustrating? Like what's the point of then sending them for an MRI? They might question all that type of stuff. Um, so I guess in terms of what I'm, what I'm asking or what I'm getting at, do you see any benefit of going to an MRI? Is there other things that should be ruled out that an MRI would be required for? Yeah, no, I think uh, you tell me, I'm sure having a scan such as that could clarify, you know, bone bruising, uh, other fractures, things like that. So it's like, I'm sure an x-ray could provide you most of that context or a CT scan. But if you, you know, not us, but uh, at a higher level, say if they have access or different countries, they have to, if they have better access to it, like other than the potential, uh, you know, contraindications or effect on their health by getting a scan, um, could it provide more detail? Sure. I, 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 I would say if it, if somebody just has to clinically reason if it makes sense for them, but clearly the, at least from extrapolating from one study, it doesn't seem to be super impactful. That's what's frustrating too. But I do think, yeah, could there be utility? I know it's a wishy-washy answer, but it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like it's required. It may not even tell you anything more. So a lot of the time, right, like scans could be helpful, so I know they can't. So I think depending on somebody's context and budget and scenario, yeah. And an X-ray or a CT could also just be beneficial for the same type of reasons. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Which I guess we could probably find further studies to see if there is any of the same type of information. But yeah. we'll do that in the future. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess uh, – if we leave all imaging aside, what is it looking like for a physiotherapist? What's a high ankle sprain kind of resembling clinical presentation? Yeah. What do you do for an assessment? Yeah. Um, so a lot of things, but like just listing off basic stuff would be like, okay, antalgic gait, 
externally rotated when they're walking, limited dorsiflexion or knee to wall. You're going to see, at least in my opinion, you see some swelling, but you don't see like a ballooned up ankle generally uh, c- compared to like, you know, you have a rugby guy coming in, his ankles blown to pieces. Um, you would see a positive dorsiflexion with external rotation test, sometimes a uh, positive squeeze test around the shin, down the leg, knee to wall, affected side to side, you know, functionally pain with hopping, with stairs, walking, squatting. Of course, if that's painful, then you're probably going to have pain with hopping, jumping, running, skating. Um, you might also see, like, if you put a little bit of a, a heel lift in their shoe, um, perhaps their skate, maybe not, you, you could see some decrease in pain. And, of course, you know, if there's if we're going back to our West Point grading scale, grade two, three, you're going to see probably a balance affected. And, of course, we get really basic ankle range of motion, active, passive, strength, et cetera. Um, one thing, you know, when we read some of these papers, too, one of the um, papers, Nussbaum and coworkers reported that there's a significant association between how far tennis, tenderness extends up the leg and how much time is lost from competition. I don't, I'm not sure the sensitivity of that, but hey, it's something to consider. Like when you're doing a squeeze test, like does that mean the syndesmosis is, is even more affected? Probably. I'm not so sure. Anything that you would add? Um, I think that's what I would start with. Just functional assessment, of course, but really you know, on your classic table tests and a subjective exam is always going to be really what's giving you most, if you're not at the rink seeing this happen. Yeah, I think the other things that you might just other things that you might want to pick up on, I guess your functional tests, your classics that you would always do. Yeah. But uh, as we talked about previously, the ATFL can be damaged a lot of the times. Yeah. Um, so it can be a little tricky at times if you're doing your, uh, your stress tests for your ligaments and you notice that that's plantar flexion inversion is a little bit still, Yeah. you know, showing up a little bit positive, right? Yeah. So just make sure you run through all your tests, I think is what it comes to at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think sometimes, yeah, you could like, if you just don't palpate thoroughly, if you just palpated the ATFL, you're like, oh, well, it's just a, a rolled ankle. But uh, yeah, a thorough assessment probably is helpful. Not, not that you would, not that you would treat these injuries substantially different, but you know, you're just you return to your return to play time might be a little bit different. That's the big exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So to follow up with that, I guess, what is your rehab plan, and what are we looking yeah. at as an approach? Is there any difference, I guess, if you were to look at a high ankle compared to just a lateral ankle sprain? Yeah. Um, anything like that? Um, probably would be a bit of a difference, but uh, depending, again, how they're progressing, you go off of a lot of things. But I think the challenge with high ankle sprains, if you look into the research and then, you know, over time, uh, you deal with other injuries and you look online for, like, return to play protocols for Achilles or um, ACL, like, that they have a gold standard, but they have um, a framework. There's not really much of that for a high ankle sprain, except for there's one by Morgan A. All um, that we'll kind of talk about a bit shortly. But my uh, rehab plan really is what I've, in my experience, not that I've dealt with a million of these, but a good amount now, specifically a handful of hockey players more so recently and then in lots in the past is, I think the big elephant in the room is establishing the weight-bearing plan. So even if it is a little bit uh, minor, um, if you can get them in a walking boot, I think that really expedites the process. 
because you know as people like crutches aren't fun to deal with neither is a walking boot but like if you can get them a bit more mobile um and if it's indicated chuck them in a walking boot that's really helpful so that's one thing is establishing your weight bearing plan and with a weight with a walking boot sometimes you can do some conditioning still you can do a lot of work in it whereas if you're kind of crutching around you're very or they're, they're very uncautious it's probably not the best but so uh what i would really start with though is establishing some sort of um conditioning aspect can you bike with it on can you do some sort of arm bike um aerodyne etc but with the high ankle, I'd probably see if can they tolerate some sort of calf loading, right, and, and lower limb loading while, of course, doing all of the other things for the contralateral limb, the upper body, et cetera. So BFR um, is useful in this context, um, such as like even with a, with a band and plantar flexion. But once they can start to do a calf raise or heel raise protocol, that's really going to start you off. And then going isometric, eccentric, concentric with all of our other um, – planes throughout the ankle is helpful too and then as soon as they're able to you know walk better without pain and or um tolerate things that's when you start to vertically integrate plyometrics as tolerated um and you know i would classify jogging and running as a plyometric as well um the goal is to, of course get them back to skating uh as soon as safely possible because we don't want those qualities of skating to dissipate but like it has to be safe to get into that and i'll probably talk about like what i would personally um suggest that they can do before skating but it's not always linear especially i found with these sometimes people because they're in a boot they can tolerate skating more than running so it's not always an easy process but you have to have some sort of framework to go off so anyways going back to the plyometrics i would start like bilateral then go split bilateral so like a gentle pogo double leg and then like a tandem pogo while this is going on trying to march skip and once they can kind of handle this stuff you're probably like okay they can probably skate uh linearly you're probably not going to do change direction work but i think that where the difference lies and sometimes in these plyometric versus skating is the requirement of dorsiflexion though because if you're sitting low in a skating stance like you're probably gonna be dorsiflex more than a very upright light jog even though you would get dorsiflexion there but probably not as much so i think uh in our settings like junior collegiate the time frames are not as you know uh crazy as like somebody in a higher level like god they want to play they were worried about their career whereas we're kind of worried about like just amateur to collegiate athletes well-being more so than somebody getting a paycheck so we have to be like cognizant of that so we're probably gonna lead things out a bit slower um but i guess to answer your question like the rehab plan is once they can tolerate more things, we get them back on the ice. And um, the sooner the better uh, is, is the main thing. I can get, I will talk more about like therapy and exercise standpoint. But I think, I think the idea of weight bearing and then getting into locomotion is really it. Mm -hmm. And does that even answer your question? Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh it definitely does to I guess uh, I was clinically reasoning my thought process that's all <laughs> yeah and uh, you kind of you kind of spell checked us all the way through but that's good yeah um, <laughs> he gave us a rehab plan he kind of gave us like a typical breakdown so that's pretty good um yeah. i guess if we kind of bring it back all the way to the beginning though when you were talking about the walking boot how long do you typically see people in the walking boot for or is there any real guideline there is there anything that yeah. you have generally seen 
I think, yeah, depending on the severity, right? Like it, 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 I've seen all of like, I've seen five days, I've seen three days, I've seen a month. Um, it's just, that's where the beauty of being in a team setting it specifically probably in ours where they're, we're there like in at the practice or at the game more often than if you're just in a clinic and you're like, Oh yeah, come back in two weeks. Here you're at. Whereas if you're there a couple of times a week, you can make these judgment calls a bit quicker. So to answer your question, it just depends on the severity really. I'm sure there are people though that, have a better indication maybe they've seen more of these and they're like yeah that's gonna take you absolutely two weeks or five weeks in a walkie boot i i would say that i prefer to keep them in it longer than they think even if they can tolerate a lot of other things when training and just kind of chuck it back on it will especially while they're wheeling around school like some of these college guys i don't always trust too much but uh i wonder why yeah but like (laughs) so yeah it just depends on the severity of what you think is going on and you gauge off that. Yeah. Um, I think our, uh, our old prof Fiona would be very happy to hear us say the individualized approach is there you go. very much. So something that is, you know, beneficial and always keep in the back of your mind, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to timelines, there's no real set timeline. And no. I feel like that probably goes more for new grads than anybody else, but uh, yeah. and for patients, they probably don't really understand that even yeah. though you see, X player in the NHL had a high ankle sprain. They were back to, you know, back to play in six weeks. Doesn't always yeah. mean that you're going to be back in six. Yeah. Um, I guess what type of criteria would you give since we're talking about that uh, yeah. for a return to skate or a return to sport? And does yeah. it change per position? Yeah. Um, so the, the one thing that um, I wanted to bring up was that return to uh play timeline because there's a good study that i was reading that we were kind of just talking about is um it was mullen not the other ones um they all and they and they looked at like the average return to sport i don't think they clarified if return to sport was actually participating in the games or if it's practicing i'm pretty sure it's actually playing um they're talking about 41 days on average uh, from some NHL guys over several years uh, data. So that's probably more of your severe, uh, severe high ankle sprains. Whereas like, you know, your grade one's probably only a week or two max, but so criteria to return to skate or to return to sport. That's how I would kind of classify it. It would be, this is going off Morgan Ayal's, um recommendations. And this is really what you'll, if somebody Googled return to sport high ankle sprain. This is the protocol that they'd probably find is this is what they've listed is minimal to no swelling, dorsiflexion range of motion, symmetrical and pain-free. I think that's fair. No pain with dorsiflexion external rotation test. I think that's fair. Near symmetrical strength and endurance at the ankles, calves, metronome test. So um, single leg heel raise test. So heel raise being off of the ground, not calf raise where you're off of a step and you're going up, down on a beats per minute perspective and just go on seeing if you're symmetrical there. That's one of the uh, tests I use quite a bit in the clinic for really any lower limb, just to give people a, like a lot with like the runners, just seeing where they're at with their strength. But um, So that's another thing. Then they talk about, of course, plyometrics. So single leg hop for distance, vertical hop, triple hop, multi hop stabilization, then they talk about star excursion balance test. I do think star excursion balance test is fine, but 
the Y balance test is probably very similar. Um, and then pain-free jogging, running, plyometrics. And I think for us, those, a lot of those things other than the star excursion balance test are pretty linear. And we know there's a rotation component to this injury. So it's like, I think there needs to be a lateral hop test. Like there, I think I sent a, a test to you a few weeks back about the ACL um, test where McHughes likes to use this a lot where it's 40 centimeters apart. You're hopping back and forth as fast as you can for 30 seconds and seeing where you're at side to side. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would include that for sure. But this return to skate or return to sport protocol or sorry, um, you know, uh, criteria is pretty thorough. Um, but subjectively too, we have to consider like, Hey, how's your day to day going? How are you? Are you sore the day after doing training? Um, I think it, what I like to operate on is like the 24 hour period after, like if you try a Toro on nice, like wait 24 hours at least to see how you responded before moving on to the next stage as well. So it's like, I know we're jumping ahead to return, like what skating uh, protocol we would use, but I think just seeing how people respond as well. It's like, cause Hey, they could have a really good day with this type of injury. And then you clear them and then they're like, Oh crap, I actually feel terrible the next day. So I think you need to consider not just like a long-term timeline, but like a, a condensed micro cycle um, timeline as well. How they respond to things. I think that answers your question. Yeah. Um, kind of leads into my next question as well with it, like more skating progression, I guess. Yeah. Like you can kind of fine tune that a little bit more. Um, yeah. But is there anything that you've seen or have used that you find to be more beneficial? Yeah. No, I think it's just like start with a twirl, see how you do 24 hours later or 36 hours, get back on the ice. If that was good, then you go kind of more linear skating wide turns maybe and then you go to a curvy linear and then once you're there you're going to do starts and stops like a day between all of those but everyone this is really where like sorry everyone loves a twirl that's right <laughs> and and the, the the limitation for us though is like maybe at the college and junior setting you have access to a little bit extra ice but if you're dealing with a, a young kid or a teenager they may not have ability to get on the ice like this and just try for a bit so if somebody, you know, we have zero listeners right now, but if somebody listens to this and they're dealing with this scenario, the probably the more bleeding out with a younger crew that you can is probably better. Um, we know that like um, from another study that I was reading into, this basically was um, high ankle sprains in all NCAA athletes and all NCAA sports. And they looked at high ankle sprain return to sport timelines. And this is Montel Ale. It's all M's with these studies. Um, they found that hockey players tended to have more of the severe sprains compared to any other sports other than lacrosse. Lacrosse and hockey had your high ankle sprains. And mm-hmm. what they also found was the female hockey players had almost a 45% reoccurrence rate of high ankle sprains. They didn't say like, if that was like in a year or a couple of weeks, but I presume it's probably like the shorter time period. So it's like the dorsiflexion requirements in hockey and or the rotational aspects on the ice are very challenging. So it's like if we can take one thing away from that study, it's like don't rush your person back 
and um, you know, recurrence rates are high. So just be cognizant of that, especially in hockey. I think on average, NCAA recurrence rates are just under ten percent, and that's one study. So it's like we're not gonna mm-hmm. say that's um, uh, related to them all, all hockey players, but it's, it's something to consider. And this is more a hypothetical thought, but in terms of when it comes to like football, like the NFL, um, I wonder if uh, now there's not a whole lot of studies backing spad taping. Um, yeah. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if that has any effect, if the spad taping actually does anything with high ankle sprains compared to everything else. That might be something yeah. we could look into or maybe, maybe someone knows something about. Yeah. Let us know. I know some people that have uh, done that with some hockey players. They seem to be yeah. think it's effective, but I'm not sure if it's really the tape or if it's just like, hey, they might feel a little bit different sensation in their foot, Options. which then makes it, yeah, makes them like more mindful of things. Placebo's um, hell of a drug, buddy. That's right. That's right. Uh, I want to circle back to treatment in clinic for a second before we yeah. finish out. Um, have you noticed any soft tissue treatment, any modalities, anything like that that's really helped in clinic, even for the patient to be able to, you know, feel a little bit more confident, maybe decrease yeah. pain, things like that, other than just sticking to the exercises. Is there anything else that you've noticed has helped? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think a reiterating back to exercises, of course, like you try to keep plan B as close to plan A as possible. So like if they can tolerate, you work backwards from skating. So like if running feels good and for whatever reason, skating is painful, then you keep being high velocity with them. You keep being plyometric based as well, strengthening and doing everything you possibly can. But um, so anyways, just trying to be as dynamic as possible with the exercise is the main thing, but uh, soft tissue work along that, the the calves, perineals, anywhere throughout the ankle is probably helpful. Mobilizations to the ankle uh, in tolerated ways. Um, some people, like I've done some dry needling along the perineals and the calves. Um, that's more just for the tissue tone aspect, obviously. Mm-hmm. Some may argue, though, like if you're a big electroacupuncturist, like may some may argue like if you um, were to do some sort of um, input at the L4, L5, S1 region with electrical stimulus, you could be evoking some sort of myotomal effect down at the ankle. Um, I personally have not done that, but I could see a reasonable argument for that. Um, or even just having needles around the area with electroacupuncture to maybe stimulate some sort of sural nerve or superficial perineal nerve. But the BFR I found to be quite helpful um, with heel raises or even like uh, plantar flexion with the band, even though that's really a little dinky exercise. Why I like that, uh, because you just get a ton of blood flow to the area. So you're going to get help with swelling. You're going to get help with potentially a little bit of hypertrophy. Um, and it just can make them feel good. So uh, to reiterate, I guess, to answer your question, it's like, yeah, soft tissue work, dry needling, uh, electroacupuncture potentially. Some may argue... If, especially if you don't have a boot, you could probably tape, of course. Um, and some may even argue for a couple minutes. I know it's probably not taken the best by everybody, but like, hey, like ultrasound could be potentially helpful for five minutes. God, if you have an hour with somebody, like I could understand that reasonable argument. Um, so even just for then, a bit of swelling, like for sure. it doesn't matter, right? Just, just yeah. even in the acute or subacute stages. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what? if you're doing it in conjunction with a million other things, like we're saying, like, yeah, it's a cocktail. Yeah. 
And one other thing I would do is NMES too, just like along the calves and anywhere around that area uh, to help with the, the muscle and as well as a little bit of blood flow. You are going to say NMES a lot of times over this podcast. Uh, hopefully not. <laughs> um, anything else to add? Anything you can think of? Uh, right. From a treatment standpoint? Just in general. I think we kind of... Just don't rush them. The ankle pretty I, well. I, think the, I think the main thing is just don't skip don't skip steps. Um, uh, maybe the one big conversation would be like conversation with your uh, your coaching staff is probably really important. And if you're dealing with kids, uh, talking with the parents and educating them because like understandably they're paying a lot of money for their kids to play sport as well. Or if it's a college guy, you know, his fourth year and he wants to play, like those are conversations that you need to have as well. So communication with everybody involved is probably your uh, one of your big elephants in the room as well. Um, but the, the practicing of patience is probably a big one. Education goes a long way. It really does. Yeah. Um, if we don't have anything else to add, which I can't think that we do, I think we'll wrap it up. Yeah. I think the one thing is the question for listeners. Maybe do you have any questions for listeners? Um, just if they have anything else to add, if they can yeah. think of anything that they found helpful or anything mm-hmm. that we've missed, they can let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have any questions for us, reach out to the hockey physio pod at gmail.com. Nice. The is included in it. And then, um, uh, that's awesome. The one thing I would say though, is the question for them is, or is two homework things is, Oh, you're giving and, homework. Yeah. I'm giving homework, Holy which most geez. people probably would do anyways, would just be like, test your knee to wall dorsiflexion test that's like a good outcome measure right uh so see what your inches are there and then do your um heel raise metronome test and see oh, what your this what your is practical is. homework oh, yeah i practical. thought you were like getting people to read i was gonna say no on, if man. they want to read the study that i was nerding out on about you yeah, are nerd. we'll, we all we'll have those we'll have those in the i guess our uh bio of this podcast but yeah mm-hmm. right on yeah no thanks for listening everybody We'll be back. Perfect.